0: a new series called Let My People Go, based on the ministry of Moses. And last week we spent a great deal of time talking about oppression. Uh, I, I feel like we spent a lot of time talking about oppression, but I don't know if we still did it enough justice to really get a grasp on how difficult the theme really is. But uh, we're going to move on today, and we're going to talk about a new aspect of this, which is when the people cry out. So we're going to be talking about crying today. And there is crying in church. But uh, I want to say a couple things first. Um, We really do have an amazing God, and I don't know if we do enough uh, work explaining this or talking about it. But our God truly is uh, amazing. The, The depth of his love for us is something we will never be able to fathom. We just keep digging and digging and digging. We learn new levels of that love and that grace. But we never really get an adequate picture of just how much love he has for us. We just won't ever do it in this lifetime. Yeah, we can contemplate the fact that he gave his only begotten son for us to die on a cross for us. That scratches the surface a little bit deeper. But still, we just don't get an idea of how awesome he really is. We don't really have a good understanding of how, how perfect he is, how perfect his timing is, how perfect his resources are, how perfect um, how perfect his involvement in our lives is. We don't get a true sense of of the miraculous, of of the powerful miracles that he can do in our lives. And a lot of times we just wash it away as if it was uh, just something that happened. Got you up on the the right side of the bed today, perhaps. But what happens is is that God teaches you about his goodness when you need these little lessons. And and so there's going to be issues, there's going to be times in your life when you need... God to be this or that, or you need him to be a little bit less or a little bit more. There's going to be times when God is going to just overwhelm you with his presence, his living presence, with his goodness. He's just going to reveal himself to you. And when he does it, even though we know it's still just a glimpse of how awesome he is, it's going to be overwhelming. You know, in 1 Corinthians 1, it says that on God's dumbest day and our best day, we still can't picture him. That's my paraphrase, by the way. But it basically says on God's weakest day, on the days that he is, uh, is a little bit least, at least in our, in our judgment, and in our best days, we still can't fathom just how amazing he is. We just can't do it. But, but, but here's one of the things, uh, and I know this sounds weird, but some of you may be able to relate to me. I enjoy, um, I don't want to call it depression, But I I want to say I enjoy periods of intense sadness. uh, Periods of time when there's intense brokenness. I have enjoyed it. Isn't that crazy to say? And, And there have been times when I was so ill with sadness and so broken that I couldn't get out of bed on a particular day. I couldn't function, I couldn't go to work, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't do anything. I found no joy or pleasure in anything at all. And on those days, I've actually enjoyed it to some degree. How was that possible? Paul kind of talks about it sometimes, that he rejoices in his suffering. How is that humanly possible that a person could actually enjoy being sad? Well, this is what I've discovered. On my absolute worst days, my absolute worst days, those are times when God has been his absolute best in my life. On those days when I can't lift up my head, he comes right alongside of me and reveals himself to me, just shows himself, just touches me or or blows on me. And something powerful happens where I get an, an impression that God is right there in my presence for me and nobody else but for me right there and in those moments I have just just sobbed because God is here with me. He is so amazing that he's right here with me today. And that only happens when I'm at my absolute worst moment, when I'm absolutely broken. That's when I experience it. I remember one day in particular after after the divorce, it'd been a couple years, maybe 3 years after the divorce, And, and it was a Saturday afternoon and, and I was laying in the bed. I had, the kids were in the other room. I only had two room apartment. It was very tiny. I mean, you had to leave the room to change your mind. It was so tiny, but, but in that little apartment, I was laying on my bed and I was just absolutely broken. I couldn't function. And I cried harder than I think I've ever cried in my life, a desperation-type cry. And it was so overwhelming to me, I could not function. And I remember Abigail coming around the corner and seeing me, and I was so embarrassed that she saw me like that. And she got up on the bed and, and lay there next to me, and couldn't do anything, couldn't say anything, but she was just there. And I'm telling you, in that day, God was right there, and He was like healing me, and He was comforting me, and... And I kept thinking, God, why are you here? You have so many more important things to do. There's so many people in worse shape than me. And it was like God kept saying, shut up. Just, just, just let me be here a moment. And, and so, you know, I think, you know, I, I hated going through that really sad and broken time. But if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't have experienced that particular level of depth of God's living presence for me. And here's, here's the, the secret. He doesn't do it just for me. He does it for absolutely every one of you who have ever gone through something tragic like that. When I got through the divorce, I've, I've had people say, oh, you're going back into ministry. Are you going to have a different attitude about divorce now that you've been through it? And I said, yes, I'm going to be more strict on it. I'm going to be harder on it. Because I know firsthand how painful and how overwhelmingly disgusting it is to go through that. How, how just absolutely worthless a person can feel going through that. Rejected and wounded. And um, it is truly the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life. And there's probably other grievances that are worse than that. But for me, that was the epitome of my life. And then I meet somebody who's been divorced twice. Or three times. You know, Sam Kennison, who I don't ever want you to listen to on on YouTube. Don't ever look up Sam Kennison. But he did a thing. He had been divorced a couple times. And he was talking about uh, how he um, was talking to Satan one day. And Satan was like scaring him, trying to threaten him, you know, saying, oh, this is where we torment souls. You know, that kind of thing. And he's like, I'm not impressed. And it's like, why does none of this scare you? He said, well, I've been divorced before. And he says, oh, of course not. And he says, "Uh, and not only that, but I've been divorced three times. And the devil says, do you want a job? Uh, But that really is hell. Going through something like that is a living hell. It really is terrible. But that's also when God does his best work. That's what the scriptures mean when it says, when I am weak, he is strong. When I am broken, he will heal me. When I go through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. He will comfort me. There's truth to that. And so whenever I read this passage of scripture here in in verse 23, it says that during that long period of time, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. I kind of feel like to some little degree, and I don't ever want to say, oh, I know what they're going through, because I don't. But I can, I can take what I know of utter depression and desperation and brokenness, and I can transfer some of it in here and say, wow, they must have really been going through a difficult time. But we don't want to miss something. It starts by saying that during that long period, the king of Egypt died. That long period of time. This is, you know, when you look at headstones and you'll see a date and a date with a dash in between. This is that dash. This is between the time that the oppression started and began to intensify to the time that God is starting to hear the cries of his people and he's starting to make up his mind, now's the time to act in that time frame there was a long period of time there were many years that passed we go back to the beginning of chapter two and we find that there was a uh, from the house of levi there was a woman who became pregnant so for nine months she carried this pregnancy now remember part of the heavy oppression was the uh the killing of baby boys this onslaught against the the newborns and the unborns of that world at that time uh it would truly be a miracle for a child to be born and, and for a boy to live beyond that particular aspect of oppression. Now I was thinking about this. When, when Pharaoh passed the edict to have all baby boys born, he did that because of the population. He wanted to control this, this increasing population of the Israelis. But, but here's what's funny. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, you don't have to pay extra for this, but it's important. Actually, it's in Genesis chapter 1. This is what God said to Adam and Eve once He created them. He said, um, be fruitful and increase in number. This was a, a blessing that God spoke upon the first two people in the world. He said, now go forth and Multiply. Go forth and do whatever it takes to multiply, to keep increasing, because I want as many people in my presence and in my kingdom as absolute possible. I want you to go out and just create as many children as you can. And so with that as, a, as a, an undercurrent, uh, Pharaoh comes along and he says, I want you to squelch that. I don't want God blessing you numerically. I don't want him provide, providing more children through your lineage. And so I want all baby boys to be killed in the first the first edict went out and the midwives just couldn't do it because it was so brutal. And so he had to come back and pass a second edict. No, you don't understand. I want them thrown into the Nile River. Every baby born. Baby boy born. So with that as a filter by which young couples would say, okay, should we have children or not? Uh, well, here's, the, here's the thought. I just lost my train of... The, see, if I had my notes, I'd have it right there. But... Uh, Here's a thought I had. Not only was there a great fear that if we produce children, it might be a boy. But there was a great fear that we can't even be intimate together. Because if we're intimate, we might already cross that threshold. And we might find ourselves in a period of stress for nine months worrying if this is a boy or a girl. What's going to happen? And and then once that child's born, then there's the, the stress of, All right, how are we going to hide this if it is a boy? If it's a girl, we're okay. But if it's a boy, how are we going to hide this? So this not only affected the mentality and and the procreation of people, but this affected the intimacy between every couple. We can't afford to get pregnant. But with that as the paradigm going on in the world, God still showed up and he worked a miracle. And he gave a baby boy into this Levite woman. And, and when the baby was born and she saw that it was a son, and she was going through that, that whole mindset of should we hide it? What should we do? Should we give it away? Should we, should we turn it over to Pharaoh? It says that she saw that this was a unique child. This was a good kid. And so she decided to put it in the Burger basket, put it in the river and ship it down the stream, right? So we know that. And we know that Pharaoh's daughter intercepted and raised the child as her own. And so this miracle of God's not only got through all the different various levels of filtering, but it got into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter where it would be actually cared for and protected and treated better than any other male child in that kingdom. That's a miracle. God did this for that family. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, One day after Moses had grown up, So not only was she pregnant nine months, had this baby in in protection for three months, and then we had to wait for Moses to grow up. We don't know how old, 20, 30 years old. How old was he? I mean, in, in the movie, he had a white beard when he took the reins of Israel, right? I don't know how old he was. We could ask Charlton Heston and find out. But the point is, is that many years passed. In that time frame, he saw the oppression of his own people. It says in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, that he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and it, it appalled him to the degree that he went and he killed that, that, uh, that Egyptian. And then he ran into the desert to flee from, the, from the, uh, the, the wrath of Pharaoh, and he hooked up with the Midians, and he decided to marry Jethro's daughter, Zipporah. And so they went through the betrothal period, and then they got married, and then it says they had a child of their own. So nine more months in the womb, and then several months of the child being weaned uh, from, from its mother. All of this happened in that little bitty phrase, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. So this is what thought goes through my head. If you're in oppression now, an oppression that you've never felt before. If you're going through a very difficult time right now, like you've never experienced and you're in complete and total despair, is it possible that God has already brought your deliverer into this world and he's just waiting for the right time to bring your answer to prayer into your life? I heard on the radio several months ago that it said, before Zacchaeus ever knew that he needed a sycamore tree in order to see the Lord... Somebody planted that sycamore tree. So is it possible that God is already at work, that God's already planted the seed for your miracle, for your breakthrough, for your revolution, for your your redemption? Isn't it possible he's already done that? No, of course, yes, we know Jesus is our redemption. But I'm talking about through Jesus, what else is God going to do to bring you to a place of strength? Now, it was 1995 or 1996, shortly after the movie came out, The Preacher's Wife with Denzel Washington. I like The Bishop's Wife, too, but The Preacher's Wife, I mean, that was just top-notch. Whitney Houston in there with her angelic voice, you know. But in the movie, the preacher was praying, Lord, help me. I need help. Please send me some help. It It was a point of desperation. It was a point of fear that he prayed, God, send me somebody. And then, of course, God sent an angel in the form of Denzel Washington. So I've been looking for Denzel to show up, and nobody's been knocking at the door. But shortly after that, I thought, you know what? That's what I need to do. I need to pray for help. I need to pray that God sends somebody. And it was a short time after that Herb McComas showed up in that little country church, 80-something years old. And he took me by the side, and he says, I'm going to mentor you. And I thought, wow, it really does help. But during that long period of time, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out, because remember, this is complete and total desperation. Now, of course, because I don't have my notes, I don't have the actual Hebrew words, which probably isn't relevant to you anyway. Um, one of them is zaak, Z-A-A-Q, which is a cool word. But it basically means that to cry out means uh, to cry out verbally, and to shout it at the top of your lungs. It means to, to, sh- to shriek, to, to scream out that you need help because you can't take anything else. That's what it means to cry out. And then you, you couple it with the word for, for groans, that means um, a deep seated sigh so deep within you that you just constantly are sighing because you can't take it anymore. You're so downtrodden. You're so disgusted with life. You're so broken, and you're so just done with everything. And and with that groaning in your spirit and then this, this verbal crying out and screaming out for help, that is the condition that the Israelites were in. Now here's the unique part of this. This was not one one hebrew that felt this way we are to see this this is collective every single jewish boy and girl man and woman were in the same boat they were all screaming out and crying for help they were screaming for god to do something in their lives to alleviate their suffering they were they couldn't take any more and they screamed god do something we can't take this any longer and it provokes an interesting question. At what point in your prayer life, in and, and, and the process of you crying out for help, at what point does God hear your request? Now, we know God is omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's there everywhere all at once. He knows your heart. He knows what motivates you. He knows your breaking point. He knows everything there is to know. He's there with you at all times. Of course, He hears your groans. But what does it take for Him to actually hear your groans and hear your cries for help and to know you're at your breaking point? It's when we get to the point where we can't take it enough and we just start screaming for help. Now, I don't know if any of you can relate to that kind of stuff. We're a very uh, intimate people. We're a very personal people, very private people. It's not unusual for us to cry in a movie like The Notebook or or in Brian's Song. Now, don't judge me for that. Brian's Song is the greatest movie ever made. When Brian Piccolo died, I cried, all right? I cried. And I hid my eyes because I didn't want anybody to see it. That's one thing about crying, but uh, there's so many different levels of crying and so many different levels of tears. I actually heard a guy in eastern Kentucky, you know, Herb, or not Herb, uh, yeah, his name was Herbert uh, also, but uh, he said he was a horse trainer, and he says, I I weep on the inside. Well, he, he hasn't been to the point of crying out for help yet. He hasn't hit the point of desperation yet. Because whenever you hit the point of desperation, you don't no longer try to hide your tears. You don't try to hide your weakness. You don't try to hide your brokenness. You don't care who sees. You don't care who witnesses. You're just going to scream because you can't take it anymore. And I don't know if any of you have ever been there before. I've seen it in some people. But that is what it took to get God... To move. He wasn't going to move when they started shedding tears. He wasn't going to move when they started, uh, you know, getting the quiver chin. He wasn't going to move whenever they ran out of tears and they just started cr- uh, dry crying. He moved when they hit the point of desperation and complete and total brokenness. And it says that God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. Now, we need to talk about this for a second, because this does not imply that God, you know, has a short-term memory. God did not forget that he had made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not forget that. But what it means is, is that he put it on the back burner, and they were just going through life. And when they hit the point of, of spiritual timing and chronological timing and the timing of their brokenness when his sovereignty dictated that now's the time he reached over and he grabbed a hold of that covenant and he said now's the time to bring it to fruition remember in genesis 15 he said you're going to he said this to abraham your people are going to go to egypt they're going to suffer for 400 years at the oppression of of But after that 400 years, you're going to leave and you're going to come back to the promised land. God knew this was going to happen. It's just saying that he didn't forget, but now was the time to enact. It was time to bring it to fruition. But then we find a verse that I find very interesting. God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Why was God concerned about them? about his people. He's God. He knows the duration of their suffering. He knows the answer to their suffering. He knows the timing. Why was God concerned? If you go over to chapter three and look at verse seven for a moment, it'll add a little bit of color to it, maybe a little bit more confusion. I don't know. In chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've seen it with my eyes. I've seen their misery. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So again, I ask the question, Why would God be concerned with their suffering? All I can do is speculate from my own experience, my own education, my own spiritual prayer life of trying to get answers from God. And this is what I believe God is trying to say to me. Because of free will, God gives you options. And the people of Israel had options. When their suffering and their abuse and oppression got so severe that they couldn't stand it, they had options. They could have taken their own lives. They could have just rebelled against God and said, God, we can't take this any longer. We're checking out. They could have blame God for this, and they could have taken God to the task and said, God, if this is the type of God you are, we want nothing to do with you. We don't ever want to worship you again. We don't ever want to serve you again. If this is what being your children means, we don't want to be your children any longer. Maybe, possibly, they could have revolted. They could have just taken up weapons, and they could have tried to overthrow the Egyptian government, to which they all would have been obliterated, and none of them would have seen the promised land. They had options. But what it says is that God was concerned about their suffering. He, he wanted them to, he wanted to allow the suffering to reach a particular point, just so he could make them stronger. You know, we talked about the reasons why people get oppressed last week. He, he just wanted to experience enough to where they could learn to love him deeper and learn to appreciate his, his presence in their lives. He, he just wanted them to experience uh, grace at the hands of the enemy's oppression. He wanted to show them that he would never leave them nor forsake them. There were things he needed to teach them. And then there's the element, we just really don't know what was going on. But the fact is, God had already planted the seed of their redemption in the life of Moses. Moses was already going through the seminary training and preparing himself to take the reins of leadership to confront Pharaoh and to take his people out of that bondage. You know, I don't know why you have to suffer like you do. And I don't know why some people seem to have to suffer more than others. It just doesn't seem fair. But we trust God that in His sovereignty and in His providence, He... He, in his providence, he knows what he's doing. Our job is not to compare ourselves to others, but just to trust God that he knows what he's doing and that there's a purpose behind it. But one thing I've learned is this, is that we can learn to, to experience God differently in positive ways whenever we can't take another day, another moment. He will come side of you. He will reveal himself to you. He will bless you. He will strengthen you. He will love on you. Because that's what God wants to do. And if you want to just slap him and run away from him, he'll let you do that too. But he has a plan. There's already someone coming that's going to help you to get out of that rut that you're in, whether it's emotional, spiritual, physical, financial, whatever it is, he already has an answer to your prayer, and he's bringing it up, he's raising it up, and he's training it, and he's he's just waiting for the perfect timing. And what if the perfect timing came on the heels of you just hitting bottom and just screaming out to the Lord, Lord, I can't take anymore, I need your help, I'm scared to death, and I just don't know what's going to happen. Would you please answer my prayer and answer it now? God, would you please show me that you care about me? And he will show up and he will just overwhelm you with love and grace like you've never felt. And he will say, I've been waiting for you to simply ask me. But he wants to know how serious you are. How deeply committed you are. He wants to know if he can trust you, if he can depend on you to do the job that he's called you to. God is absolutely perfect. You know, that Saturday afternoon I was laying in bed and I remember saying to Abigail, this is not so much because I'm lonely. This is because I feel like I have done more damage in my relationship to God and he doesn't care for me anymore. But in my, in my spirit, I was thinking it would be nice if he would send me some help. Somebody just to come alongside of me and take me by the hand and say, I'm here for you. Um, I could go into a lot more detail about that, but I don't want to bore you. I don't want to make you throw up. But the point is, God had already brought a woman into the world who had a similar experience with brokenness. The timing wasn't right yet, but it was right on the cusp. It was right about to happen. And just several weeks later, God introduced me to, to some degree, my Redeemer. And if I had to go through that brokenness again to meet such an amazing lady, I would do it. If I had to go through that brokenness again to experience a death of God that I never had experienced before, I would do it again. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you with complete and total honesty and transparency. Lord, here are the areas that were broken. Here is the degree to which we are in desperation mode. We give you our wounds, our hurts, our pains, we lay them at your feet. Our concerns, our fears, our worries about the future, we lay them at your feet. And we just cry out to you, Lord, please help us. Please help us. We can't take any more. I pray as a church, corporately, that you will hear our cries for help. Our cries for a worship leader. Our cries for people who just love you, Lord, and are prayer warriors and want to pray for us. Who want to participate in ministry with us. I pray individually that you'll provide for us, Lord, in unique and powerful ways. And I pray that you will change the way we pray, the way we seek, the way we walk with you, the way we believe. We need a radical restoration of our heart, soul, and mind. And we cry out to you today and pray, Lord, would you please meet us where we are? Because we can't take it any longer. We pray this complete and total humility. In Jesus' loving and precious name, amen.